you, Matt and Andrew. Um, Chris Howie, I'm the CEO of RMA Network. Uh, we provide a marketing and insurance uh, service to the independent agents across Australia. There we go. Chris and I are on another podcast we won't mention as well from time to time. You don't want don't to give the competition too much of a leg up, given they've got such a legend of Kerry Lonigan doing it. So, but you've I've, been. Uh, uh, now I've never been invited on once. No, we can see why, Andrew. That's, 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 yeah, they don't care about they don't care about grain. The only interesting about grains is when they go down the neck of a cattle. So you know that's okay. uh, that's it. Um, so we've got Chris on to have a bit of a chat uh, around my bit on the new role and about markets and what's been going on as, as well. Um, but we thought we'd start off. We do a, a little word association, Chris, where we fire a word at you and just you come back with the first thing. A very short phrase or a one-word answer that comes to mind. Before we, before we get into that, we have to do. We haven't done it in a while, but we have to run through uh, criticism and and compliments. Oh, in terms of <clears throat> um, okay, right, yeah. So this is our this is our, um, what um, what is it when you have uh, mostly it's criticism, isn't it? Mostly it's criticism, but there is a. I don't know if this is a criticism or a compliment, so I'll take it either way. So we just, let, Chris, Chris. What we want to do is we always like to address all the complaints that we receive, yeah, uh, in a in a professional manner. Uh, then we tend not to address those complaints further. We don't tend to fix the problems. Uh, one one of the complaints was that the audio is not always great, uh, mm. but uh, it's a hobby podcast, so we we will try our best. Uh, to to improve the quality, uh, but as a hobby podcast, we don't have we don't have the big bucks like Kerry Lonergan and those blokes. No, no, that's usual. He's got a cast of thousands that make sure everything all everyone does all the dials and switches in the background to make sure we sound good. And uh, the there was a compliment. There was a there was one of our listeners from up in Tully in Queensland. Oh yeah, had apparently said that Andrew's not that bad to it. Listen to. I can understand what he mostly says, yeah. or something along that lines. Maybe that's what. Maybe, maybe that's what they're saying when when they say they can't. The, the quality of the audio is not good. They might be referring to your accent, Andrew. Possibly. No, they said it's too oh. quiet at times. So, if you've got any complaints, criticisms, or compliments, or ideas for guests, blah 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 blah, um, drop us a tweet or a message or whatever else. We're easy to find. Um, yeah, let's get into it. All right, okay. Well, we'll, we'll fire off. So we call it the sixth sense. We're just going to fire off. It's six six words at you, Andrew and myself. Fire off, and just the first thing that comes to mind, or a very short phrase, and uh, we'll go with that. Do you want to start off, Andrew? Black pudding. Scotland. Sheep prices. Difficult. Cattle prices. Uh. On the move. Agency services. Improving. Online transactions. Dangerous. Crocs footwear. Sick individuals. (laughs) (laughs) So they're... Chris didn't give us any indication. He just said Scotland for black black pudding, didn't it? It, it, it wasn't it wasn't a, a favourable nor a disfavourable kind of view. Do you want to just elaborate? Is that is black pudding a good or a bad thing? Because you, you're on the edge of being thrown out the podcast saying you don't like Crocs. Ah, uh, well, that's uh, I'm uh, I'm Scottish by heritage. I love black pudding. 
It actually reminds me of the goodies, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Andrew's probably too young to know who the goodies are. The goodies. Yeah. yeah. But you want to yeah. look up the Epi Thump episode, that's what you need to look at, uh, Andrew. Yeah. Proper proper British humour. Is, is that the one in the department store? No, 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 no. This is like a skit, almost like a skit oh, that, show. That was, that was already being served, wasn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the good, the goodies. Well, there's three of them, wasn't it? The goodies. That's um, it. Yeah, and they used to just do like a bit, bit kind of Benny Hillish kind of, but you know, bit kind of you know silly humour. Um, and they do like a little skit show every week. And it was when we only had three television channels. You'd raise them to make sure that you, you didn't miss it. Yeah. So, Chris, you were at Stockco. Until recently, is that, is that right? That's correct. I had four years, uh, nearly five years with Stockco, uh, with uh, providing livestock finance, uh, which uh, which was a great role. It allowed me to continue my contacts across Australia and, and open the door for uh, producers to actually utilise their available feed. Where were you before that? I had 31 years with Elders, and my last 10 years at Elders, I was the National Livestock Manager. And now you're at RMA. That's it. So, so, uh, so one, what, of those, what's... one of those uh, approaches that you weren't expecting, RMA came and asked whether or not I'd like to come on as their CEO for their uh, their, their marketing and insurance uh, business. What's the what's what 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 footprint? What, what's the footprint of RMA? Well, like, give us a rundown. Well, what is RMA first? Because um, uh, as, as, as we mentioned before, I'm in grains, so... I'm ignorant towards all things livestock, so right. give us give us the, the basics. Uh, so, rural marketing agents network, and um, what we do is we provide, probably in the true sense of a form of service centre for the independent agents across Australia. So, our footprint ranges from southern Queensland uh, all the way to Western Australia, and uh, we provide uh, debtor and transit insurance. Uh, product for the agency community, as well as marketing placement. Uh, we've got uh, a, a marketing team, including graphic design. And on the back of that, it's uh, a professionalism, so training and uh, and elevating the professionalism and standards for the agency community, um, the Australian agency community. Okay, but, you- but, but man, what, what, what do you, when, when you say that the independence, what does that mean? Uh, that means that they haven't got a corporate a corporate uh, owner or uh, under a corporate franchise arrangement. So it ranges from a basically a husband and wife operation. You know, um, uh, the the wife does the admin, the husband or, or vice versa does the uh, sales, uh, all the way through to multi multi location agencies that uh, have got numerous staff, but they're still owned. Uh, under under a private ownership structure, okay. is that is that so? The independent side so, so, of so that agency is that basically, growing basically, or is that basically not nutrient or elders would be sort of yeah, pretty much it. So, yeah, so, so nutrient and elders, you know, they're viewed as a corporate. Um, there are other agencies out there that you would nearly consider semi corporate, but that's only because of their their yeah. board and management structure. They're still privately owned, so you know they're still eligible. To uh, to have a membership discussion with RMA, like a guy is like it? like Daniel McCulloch, is it Daniel McCulloch? He'd yeah, be yeah. he'd be one of the independents. Yeah, okay. Daniel is an independent agent. That's correct. Um, and you know he's he's been in the 
in the process of building his his I suppose brand awareness and um, locational placement. But he's at this point of time he is not a member of RMA. Is that that's what you're saying? Like obviously Daniel's one that's gone out. Uh, in the last what five years or six years now, maybe five years, and and got his own one set up. Is is that been? Is it more the trend that those independents are growing, or are they? Is it a bit of a, a battle against the the bigger the bigger kind of groups that are taking market share and growing quicker? Yeah, it's it's probably a, a good opportunity. The agency community it runs in cycles. So ever since the mid eighteen hundreds, what happens is that the agencies grow. And then the bigger agencies will quite often go into an acquisition phase, which we've seen with the two bigger ones over the last three years. Uh, and they, they will go and make an offer to an independent agent and say, look, we'd like to take your business on. They come under the umbrella of the corporate. And then on the opposite side of the cycle, we then see uh, probably corporate agents decide that, you know, I'm going to do this by myself and they become independent agents. So, it's a fairly mature rotation. It's not new. Uh, we're seeing currently, we're seeing uh, agencies that, that the principals are getting to retirement age and they're saying, well, look, it's time for me to exit. And they're looking at the opportunities, uh, and whether it be, you know, AWN in expansion mode, whether it be an, an elders or a, uh, or a nutrient, or it might even be another agent in the same town that they say, look, why don't we put the two businesses together? Because yeah. there was a bit of a, when the Roku nutrient thing went through, what was that, three years ago? Four years ago. Oh, it's, mm. it's, honestly, it's probably six or seven years ago now. Yep. And in terms of that one, like the, at that time, there was a lot of guys who did leave Roku or were previously Roku staff who'd sort of gone from, they'd gone from independence to the Roku mold and then almost left Roco when it became part of Nutrient. So it was quite a bit of an exodus of staff. I know some of them went to Elders, AWN or Delta, but some of them set up their own shops as well, I imagine. They, they did. And and what it is, it's the independent component is about running your own ship. It's not about being being obliged or or under that corporate umbrella. And and once you go into that corporate style management, there's not a lot of wriggle room, you know. It's uh, because you're you're accountable to the shareholder, you're accountable to the board um, via the management structure. So a lot of a lot of um, independent agents are very proud. Well, well, actually, all independent agents are very proud of the fact that their name is above the door, mm. and they're creating they're creating a value proposition for their clients within their community. And uh, and 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 they do. They take a lot of pride in that, and everyone. You know, they've got different drivers. Some are just uh, are very invested in the community. Others want to expand and, you know, become bigger than bigger than the average. Um, but at the end of the day, it, it's it's just because they want to be their own their own master more than. So, the, so, the, so then those independents decide they're going to you know be part of RMA as a as a like a subscription type basis. Does that then does RMA then give them some level of that? Not corporatization, but it gives them that kind of broader organizational structure outside of what they're doing within their own agency. Like, a, a, is that is that kind of where RMA fit in as well? Yeah. So RMA, what we don't do is we don't interfere with the transactional day to day business of an agency. So in regards to their back end systems, what we do is we we provide an economy of, an economy of scale around marketing, around insurance, around creating a value proposition that's directly aligned 
to helping that agency. And, and the network is extremely important in regards to the membership contact, uh, you know, the directory, the, the, um, what you would say, the associate membership, you know, service providers that actually add value and the training is, is uh, very important as well. Yes, it's a bit. It's a bit like uh, I don't know if you remember, Matt. You remember Curly, uh, Ian Dalgrish. Yeah, yeah. He was setting up that Rise. No, Agri- no, no, no relation to me. No, uh, Rise Agri, mm-hmm. which was similar sort of thing, but for grain brokers. Yep. The idea was that they're all small, kind of independent grain brokers who are non-competitive with each other, and uh, they were effectively, you know almost sort of sharing information at one point, but also just best practices, that type of stuff. And then sort of back-end sort of stuff, I think, was part of it, like admin assistance, that yeah. type of thing. So, so the, the establishment of back best practice, and then look, I I think having come in after um, my my uh, the previous uh, CEO, and, and Michael has done a great job. We've got RMA to a point now that it's got a launching pad to probably go into that next stage. But we view ourselves as the agent's agent. If someone wants to know something, they call us. If that someone hasn't got the skill set inside their business, they give the they give the RMA team a, a call. And again, we we make connection. Who do we speak to? Uh, a lot of the smaller independents haven't got a HR capacity. So what we do is by default, we find the correct HR provider for them. You know, it might be in process, procedure, documentation. And we also, um, again, around the training, around compliance is, you know, we will have the membership ask, can we can we be upskilled in X, Y and Z? And then what we'll do is find the uh, facilitator to deliver that. And so you mentioned as well with regards to agency services in that, in that um, initial sixth sense, uh, word association you, you said it was um improving and i wasn't sure if you're referring to the the kind of situation for agencies improving in the sense that it's getting easier and better or you you're referring to the agency services itself that, that as an industry they're improving their offering yeah it's, it, within agency services what i've found is that um you know corporates corporates my position we're we're a lot more nimble but we're, we've we've gone past that phase where there was information out there, and a lot of a lot of I'd say producers were thinking, oh, well, there's enough information, we can do that ourselves. And the agency industry has now gone back to being a point of contact to, I suppose, sort through the information and find out what opportunities and what options are available. And I think we're seeing at all levels, corporate all the way down to sort of small small farm locations are are seeing the agency community as that that glue around finding that opportunity networking creating a, creating a point of difference for want of a better word Act, acting as a filter to a degree as well or a funnel like getting because there is i mean data and and information like you said is becoming more and more prevalent and increasing but sometimes while that can be useful and for guys like Andrew and I we love more data the better but for some people when you've got other things to do and a farm to run and livestock to look after and whatnot, that you're, you've only got a certain amount of time to digest what's out there. Um, so yeah. you're saying the agencies, agency services can assist with that as well. Yeah, very much so. It's What we've seen is there's, there's information paralysis happening. There's so much information that that 
a, an individual or a, or a farm operation that's busy putting crop in or shearing or whatever hasn't got the time to digest and filter that information. And again, like all, all industry, I don't know anything about building boats, but um, and if I looked at the information, I'd, I'd struggle. Whereas with me, the information, or with yourself, the information comes in. You immediately know what it relates to, and you can you can create a balanced opinion. And I think that's the beauty of this role, is that I'm, I don't have to follow a um, a company agenda. What I can do is, you know, without fear or favour, say, look, I think this is this is where we sit in the world at this point of time. And again, that comes down to young people giving them an understanding of, you know, what is valuable and what is just noise and you need to disregard. Is it just livestock or do they have wool, wool brokers in the mix as well for RMA? Um, look, we've got, we've got varied. We've got livestock only. We've got livestock and wool. Um, so uh, Sheep Bell is one of our members and, and they are a, they're a wool broker by, by heart with livestock um, on the side. And then we've got the larger businesses that will also have um, – uh, farm supplies, they'll have insurance, they'll have real and, and real estate. So we've got the full spread, you know, so from the house-based operation all the way through to multi-location, farm supply, wool insurance, real estate. So what what you mentioned, what, what was your response to when I said online sales of of livestock? Uh, I think danger, dangerous or something like that, I think you said. Or... Yeah, that, and, and the reason I say dangerous is because everyone thinks being an agent's um, having a cup of coffee and cutting a deal. Like if you look at the uh, size of value, if you move move a semi load, and we go back two years ago, a semi load was two hundred thousand dollars of whether it be sheep or cattle or wool for the, for that point. Um, so we've got an online proliferation of of we can do this for you without an agent. Now, Auctions Plus is very stable and the, and the agency community looks after them and, and we haven't got any shareholding in Auctions Plus at RMA, so I can say this without fear or favour. Well, it's owned 50-50 by Roco and, and not yeah. Roco, Nutrient, Nutrient and Elders. Yeah. yeah, so mum and dad own Auctions Plus, so work out which one's mum, which one's dad. That depends on what day, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but uh, what we've found is that to try and get around that I suppose the auctions plus power that they've got, there's an offering out there of you can self-list. Now, self-listing is a wonderful thing, and I've been there and done this inside. If you're self-listing a a single item or a single animal, there is no averaging. But what we're seeing in a falling market is self-listing, rose-coloured glasses from the vendor, my stock are perfect. A week later when delivery comes about, you've got a – a rejection of 20% or a short payment on an invoice, they're the pieces that are very dangerous for those that don't understand because everyone at present is looking to soften their buy price. And without the without that, I suppose, that intermediary, um, like a, a, a qualified assessor, that very quickly becomes a dangerous place to live. And, and irrespective of size, doesn't matter whether you're selling 20 lambs or you're selling 5,000 steers, it makes no difference. But do you think the weather, like I look at, again, I'm, I'm, I've, I know that cattle, sheep and wool is a bit more objective at times, or it is largely objective when it comes to buying and selling. Grains is, is quite the opposite where it's just basically, as long as it meets a quality spec, 
you get paid. So we're seeing a, a bigger proliferation of online transactions. We're seeing clear grain is probably growing year on year. And it's, I would say it's 99% of the online market for, for grains, for physical grains in Australia. Do you think there's ever a stage where, you know, online livestock without the agent becomes the main way of selling? Or do you think it's just not possible? Uh, Look, Auctions Plus is the largest sale yard in Australia at present for store stock. Okay, so tick. And the store stock are those that you buy to improve or to breed with. And so you're accepting of a variation within the assessment in regards to whether it be weight, size, wool, quality. Wool is absolutely objective. Wool is the best measured uh, product in Australia it, to the nth degree. We know everything possible to know about wool. When we get to, to um, prime stock for slaughter, you know, to go to processes, the specifications become quite quite um, uh, prescriptive because mm. each process has got their own end market, so they don't want a lamb that's under 18 kilo. The reason being is they haven't got a market for that lamb. That's where the subjective component comes into livestock. So an animal may weigh a... 50 kilos, which is wonderful, but it may not have the condition on it that allows it to fall into spec. This is the part where an agent offering is extremely valuable because the numbers of livestock they handle and the fact that you've got, even for the young ones, you've got a depth of experience behind them, allow them, and that's what they get paid their commission for, is to go and assess the animals to make sure that they they fit them into that particular specification. So if you notice, most agents now drive around, they've got a trailer on the back with a set of Prattley or set of True Test um, scales, and a lot of them are quite elaborate now. They've scales, air compressor, fully automated, and it comes down to weighing lambs, and which is your objective measurement. You've got the weight, and then subjective to make sure that they are in the right condition to meet the specification, and whether that be lambs, cattle, whatever. What what in terms like here here's a here's a, a hard one for you. This is a question that we've had over the years. Like back when cattle were what was the record cattle price for like the Eki? Uh it got up to thirteen hundred? Uh, no, 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 not quite as high as that. Uh I think it nearly got to eleven hundred. Yeah, it, it just broke eleven, I reckon. Eleven hundred, yeah. yeah. So so here, here's a curly question. Because uh, you you've had it quite easy so far, Chris. That's right. Uh, so agent charges like what four point five percent, give or take. Yep. Well, whatever they charge, that's up to them. But yeah, uh, continue. But, but around about that level, yeah. Yep. What about when four point five percent at you know eleven hundred and four point five percent? What are we at just now in the Eki? Five hundred. Yep. 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 How no, are you, yeah, no, but you're getting that. I think no, that, I'm just, I'm just getting like, right, a, like, right. like, like a lot of, a lot of producers say, oh, we, we pay the same percentage regardless of the price. What, what would be your view on that? That each, each agency make their own business call around, around their marketing fee. Okay, so that's, I'm not going to go into the percentage, but if, if an agent is seen as an asset, that conversation disappears. If they're seen as a cost, well, that conversation's always going to be, that's going to be the first thing out. My question is, we normally don't see anyone querying what the agronomist charges when they go out and do the, the paddock plan and, and they're paying in advance. We don't see the accountant who does your books 
and says, here's your bill, by the way. We don't see that queried because that's just an expectation. If you look at the livestock agency community, all of the work is done in expectation that you're going to sell something that creates a commission or a marketing fee that allows you to be paid for work done in advance. So when I go out and help a client select their RAM, I don't charge for that. When I help them select their bull, I don't charge for that. When I go out and have a look at the cows and calves and we start talking about target marketing and we're aiming, there's no charge. There's no invoice created. So at the end of the day, I have to maintain a relationship and a value proposition for a producer that gets to the point where I can actively market their livestock, take the Dell Credit. So I pay in advance. I make sure that the client gets their money, uh, even if sometimes the processor or whoever bought them takes a bit longer to pay. So all of these things form part of that value proposition. Now, the individual companies or the individual yeah, individual companies, it's entirely up to them on what they charge and how they go about that. Are, are some are some of them charging a fixed fee as well now, or is it oh, that, 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 that's that's always been there? There's there's a, a multitude of different ways to charge, and that comes down to individual discussions. Um, and and truthfully, the 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 easiest one is the marketing fee. When you get down into what you think might be easier, like fixed fee or 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 set rate. What happens then is the question gets asked about how much am I providing for what I'm, the return is, or vice versa. Um, am I getting, you know, the, the producer going, oh, I'm paying this lump sum every month or whenever, am I getting return? So agencies, pretty much, and, and a Harvard Uni study did this, agencies, the last purely relationship-based business left in the world because the brand stickiness is eroded now. It used to be that you dealt with a company. What we're finding more and more now is you're dealing with the individual because if that individual is delivering a service that helps your business and they decide to move companies, a lot of clients are now following that individual. I guess that's a, and that's something that we've experienced in a way, Matt. In, in the yeah, past. absolutely. Yep. But, but I think, a lot of and the independents might be slightly different because they're family-owned companies generally, and they're probably closer to the owner is probably closer to all the employees. But in a larger entity, the owner is not necessarily close to the individual agent, and they don't necessarily. I guess the thing is they don't really respect how much value is held in the individual employee, and that's why we've seen. I guess we've seen. Again, like go back to that rural co-nutrient takeover. So many people went off and set up their own things or went and created new divisions within other entities. AWN was probably a big winner out of that. But I, I guess you're right in that, you know, you, you are paying for the, the performance of it. It's a bit like uh, soccer, isn't it? Mm. It, it, you know? it is. And sorry, we've all had the discussion. There's been a significant transaction. It's a one-off. You know, it might be onto a live export um, boat or it might be, you know, a, a dispersal or whatever. At the end of the day, that becomes a commercial discussion. It may not be the ongoing rate, but in that one particular instance, the, the, the volume is significant enough that you sit down, you actually have quite a meaningful discussion with a producer. Um, 
And the good agents, and we've seen this over the years, the good agents are the ones that sit down every year with the producer and actually run through what the plan is. Instead of just being transactional, they talk about, you know, what are we trying to do? Who's our target? Have we got enough feed to do it? Are we buying? Are we breeding? And that is something that I think agents are doing more and more of now, which is bringing them back into the fold as as a significant player in, in rural Australia. You, um, I was going to flick across to prices because we mentioned sheep pricing at the outset as well, which I think you said challenging was your response, something, something to that effect. And it's one that's been quite topical given normally this time of year, we see, you know, peaks in in pricing because of the the winter, you know, kind of supply uh, crunch that we generally see in winter. But that just hasn't occurred this year. There's still been plenty of turnoff going through, um, and and a lot of people are saying there's a backlog of of um, product overseas, and export markets are starting to slow down. But looking at the figures all the way through this year, particularly for sheep meat and mutton specifically, has been very strong. Um, so it doesn't. What we're seeing price-wise doesn't quite correspond on the demand side to what we're seeing in our export markets just yet. Um, and 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 like I said, this supply continues to come forward and obviously keep keeping prices um, quite depressed. So it's frustrating farmers. What are you, what are you seeing from your end, Chris, at the moment? Like, are we going to see a late squeeze? Do you think uh, just before the spring flush, or is that 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 kind of opportunity going out the window at a rate of knots? No, I think I, I think we I think we're cooked. And don't worry, I'll put my hand up and say I got this wrong too. So to to look backwards now, you're actually finding some moving parts that I missed. So we had a massive carryover of old ewes. Um, we had three really good years. You couldn't buy, you know, three three four hundred five hundred dollars for young ewes. So we started holding ewes longer, and we started buying old ewes to get another lamb out of. So we've got this inventory in the merino and the crossbred world of merinos, there's plenty of six, seven and maybe eight-year-old ewes out there and we've got crossbred ewes that are drifting towards 10 bucks. So that's that's our first volume hurdle. The second one was that when we moved the dentition component of uh, uh, lamb, yep. what we've done is we've put another, pretty much we've put another month of, of um, life into a lamb. So that's pushed that back. So that's the one. And the one that, and, and I've only just found this out in the last few days, there's a huge number, and I know the goats are there. There's a huge number of goats, and we went from $10 a kilo back to hard to sell them. Yeah. But what we are seeing is that a, a massive amount of the uh, the mutton, mutton fuel is being utilised uh, for goats at present in various processes because there is a margin in that goat meat piece at present. Um, and, look, I don't think the goats, the goat numbers are going to go away because we haven't seen it get dry yet. The numbers are starting to move and some of the numbers I'm hearing from Queensland all the way through to South Australia are just uh, it's significant to the point that the hardest part is going to be getting weight into them because there's a lot of goats that are too light and so they're not coming back at any commercial value. Yeah, I was right. up I was up in, in Longreach, it would have been maybe three or three years ago now. Yeah. And everyone at that stage, you know, would, like obviously there was a lot of talk around the rebuild of the flock um, in sheep, but most of the most of them around Longreach were all talking goats at the time. So I think they've really exploded in terms of population there. 
That's right. And so we've got exclusion fencing, the ability to put weight into goats, you know, in, confine, in confinement. But now we've got this massive feral population that pretty much I've never had a goat sale before in my life and then tomorrow I've got a thousand goats walk onto my property. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is drop everything, muster the thousand goats, put them on a truck and try and sell them to someone because it's it's like it's like winning a scratchy. You didn't have it yesterday, today you've got it, and tomorrow they might be in the next door neighbor's property. Mm. Yeah. What about like that's the thing that Matt, there's been a lot of discussion. I noticed this morning there was discussion on Twitter again about it. And you wrote an article about it. Is this sort of spread between the price received by the producer and the price received either at retail or in Australia or versus the retail in, in the US? You know, like the US producers are getting you know fairly high prices for the sheep versus ours, sheep and lamb. Mm. Yeah, that's probably true. So, so Even the, the, the European operators as well, if you look at those price comparisons, uh, of Australian equivalents into into UK or Europe or North America or you know there there's significant um, significant differences in terms of Australian animals at a discount. It is causing frustration for the the average producer. I've, I've seen a few. I think Andrew, Andrew Freshwater was one that keeps posting presently about the the price differentials. Yeah. So when's that going to come back to to, to normal levels? If, if we look at two, two and a half years ago, two years ago, um, we, were, we were leading the world. So there were two things that happened. The world either had to catch up to us or, or our price had to come back. Otherwise, you know, we, we were going to price ourselves out of existence. And that seemed to be the commentary at that time. The US drought broke exactly the same circumstances what we come out of in 2019. Supply started to drop. Demand has gone up. And so they're now getting... Price is equivalent, maybe a little bit better than what we were getting, you know, for the, the three good years. It seems as though our market, however, has overcorrected. And and I know that Matt and myself have mm. said this in numerous yep. occasions. And not in this what podcast, happened? though. No, no, that's it. Somewhere else. <laughs> in our various media pieces. But um, what it's done is it's overcorrected. And now we've got it to a point where it hasn't been allowed to rebound. I think the cattle job's just got a little bit of movement in it yet. I don't think the sheep and lamb job has. The problem is back in 2008, we saw this happen and a lot of people exited the the lamb industry. They just said, no, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, now, the other part, uh, I was in uh, Wodonga last week or week. We went into a, a little place called, um, uh, oh, shit, what's it called? Albert's. Um, in, uh, in Wodonga, they're a wholesale business. They put loin chops out at $9.99 a kilo. That just is special. I was talking to their butcher. He said they sold 300 units before lunchtime. Everyone wants to eat lamb, but everyone's talking about how it's still so expensive in, in the shop. Rump steak, you go to a supermarket, it was still $25 a kilo. You go to a wholesaler, it was $14 a kilo. <laughs> I think... I think the, uh, as Matt's reported, the, the price variance as percentage back to farmer is too wide at present. And I know that businesses are there to make money, but at the end of the day, you do have to share the love a bit. And uh, and I think cost of living, we should see meat prices getting significantly cheaper in supermarkets and, you know, anywhere really, because 
what we're getting for it at ground level is does not correlate at all. Mm. It does, I mean, I'm not sure if we will see it significantly cheaper. Though I think, um, I think it's we'll see, oh, we'll see the the calls with dividend increasing as opposed to the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the 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 price being passed on. Yeah, and I mean, if you look back, if you look back, kind of beyond the last few years as well, we're we're kind of if you look at that producer share of that retail dollar, we're kind of back to where we were before this last you know kind of decent rally in pricing in in terms of the livestock rally in pricing. So I'm I'm wondering whether we're just reverting back to a more normal situation of where those margins are sitting, or you know I I'd expect there's some margin being captured through the supply chain. Of course, it was. Previously being captured by the um, by the producer, um, you know. But yeah, I'm 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 not too sure we're going to see significant um, cheaper uh, retail red meat at the moment. It, it might be a, you know a little bit of a reduction in pricing, but nothing substantial. What I, what I've noticed, and this is completely anecdotal, is I still notice that people are still out there. I know people like I'm in Canberra, so it's probably a bit of a well it is a bubble because everyone's on a public <laughs> servant wage but like there's still like I got a Woolworths yeah I mean like it's the closest one and it's, the shelf's still empty like red meat is still like there's never any mince you got to get in early if you want mince chicken's generally a good supply vegan products are always massively in supply but like red meat products are always difficult to get like if like say Ten, five years ago, you could go to the supermarket and meat was cheaper, but you could still get access to what you wanted. It almost feels like there is a scarcity factor as well because you you can't go in there and say, I want X type of steak. You go in there and you get whatever is there, effectively. That's that, a bit of a tangent, but... No, that's and, and because the in-store butcher no longer exists. So the in-store butcher, whether whatever supermarket it was, they they had a, a performance indicator which was keeping the, the shelves full. They produced their own mints. They sliced their own meat. Whereas now, um, a lot of it's centralised. It's pre-packaged, mm. and you know you've got a fifteen or a sixteen-year-old shelf stacker, and at the end of the day, that's their job. So it probably comes down more to individual store management than I, I know that the supermarkets would. They wouldn't want any of their shelves empty because that's just otherwise you can't sell it. Well, bread's equally as bad. If you go in for bread after after five thirty, it's impossible. Yeah. Got to yeah. get got to get brown stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. not good. That's not good for a sausage sandwich. <laughs> brown bloody bread. <laughs> so, like another like talking about that that prices into the US, yeah. Uh, we've seen a bit of an uproar in the last week or so from RCAF. Which is like a bunch of Texan hat wearing uh, uh, lobbyists from the US trying to get a Australian lamb banned from from from. Oh, not, ba- not banned, not well, banned, but um, rest- you know, limited. Well, it's yeah. restricted. Whether it's tariffs or whatever else. What, what's what's the two boys' views on that then? Because I've got a, I've got a, I've got a view on it, but when when you look at the American population. Can we supply the Americans? Yeah, we can. We and we do it well, and do it and like the processes and the meat trading companies do it exceptionally well. But in regards to creating logistics chains, supply chains, to go there and supply everyone, it's just it's it, it's nonsensical. They've got to stick to their knitting. 
they they supply into their markets, even though they know there's other markets. It takes a long time to develop those those cold chain supply chains. At this point of time, I we see it. I, I think it's 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 something to make noise about. Normally, it's a distraction. There might be something for the right hand side, and if we talk about this, no one's looking at that. I mm. I, I don't lose too much sleep over it. No, I think it's curious one too that because our car is effectively a beef kind of side business, and they're and they're they're trying to come in as support for their fellow um, sheep and lamb producers in the US. But the what old Jock Thompson's burns. That's it. But the increase, if you look, I mean, obviously not this year because we've gone back. If you look at the flows, export flows into the US from Australia this year, it's back to more average levels. But the previous two years, twenty twenty two, twenty twenty one. We saw about thirty percent higher volumes on average going through those two years from Australia. So much, much increased um, flows. Uh, that that's a good sign. But if you look at what the US are consuming per capita, lamb consumption is still down at like you know three kilos a person or something ridiculously low. So are we less than are we less than yeah. kilos a person per per, yeah, per person it's per nine, year? Nine hundred grams, I think. It's not. Yeah. It's not yeah, so 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 you're talking. Incredibly niche market, incredibly niche product, and I think last year Australia to the US, Australia sent something like one hundred thirty thousand tons of sheep meat combined, mutton and lamb. The US produced just under sixty thousand ton for the whole of their production. So we're 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 sending more double what more than double than what they're they're making themselves. And and the last twenty years, the the flock in the US has gone from like seven million head to five million head. So. The decline in that flock and the decline in production has been well and truly entrenched before Australia got on the scene. Um, so I think, yeah, this this kind of discussion seems to me to be a bit of a a bit of a red herring or a furphy. You know. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna flip it around a bit and play devil's advocate here. Uh, if this opposite, like people were surprised and people are annoyed that American farmers are talking about this year. Same with U- UK farmers are complaining about it. Australian lamb going into the UK. I'll ask you honestly: Do you think Australian farmers would be doing exactly the same thing if we were importing, I don't know, Indian buffalo into the Australian meat market? Absolutely. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And and because I got I got told off saying, "Oh no, we wouldn't be complaining." You know, it's all about free trade. But as soon as we, you know, I know we import. Yeah, but we don't you know, want any buffalo for biosecurity reasons, Andrew. Oh, sorry, sorry, no, 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 cook meat, but. Uh, the and this is where I, where I sort of see this thing is everybody wants to protect their own backyard, so American farmers are going to p- try and protect. Of course, you would. Same as that we we protect that we don't want dis- dried distilled grains in Australia, which is left over from the brewery process to feed animals during drought because of biosecurity. But it's it's an inert product, so its biosecurity risk is minimal. So I, th- we- I think I, I think on balance, so given we've got such a small population and that most of our agricultural product is exported, you know, it doesn't matter what you're looking at. There's not pork, many of the pork. Well, that's yeah, probably one of the few that. But then we we, we do olives a lot with imports. Yeah, um, olive oil, olive oil, horticultural products. So there are products that are imported, but it's like a what did we say? Libanius in the ninth century. Mm. So. so- so this is, and because I'm old and you're not, Andrew. So the Australian pork industry, pre 1990, was just a flourishing industry. It was it it was 
It was in absolute growth stage. Chapman's came out with the first ever Matrix grid in 1988. No one had ever seen one before. Um, so the expansion of the pork industry was nearly exponential. And it went from being the mum and dad operation that had five sows in the backyard and the, the pigs used to pay for the um, for the holiday. And you had places like Murray Bridge and Toowoomba and Truro. They all had massive live open cry pork auctions. And then what happened is that we allowed access to the European pork to come in and we got into this cycle that when it got to $2.20, a heap of ex-imported pork would come in, the market would collapse back to $1.60 and it would all go through and the the profitability of the the smaller operator in the pig industry just went out the window. And so what we did is we actually saw that access into Australia take the legs out from under the pork industry. Now, Pork Australia are doing a great job at present. They're promoting uh, buy pork, which is great, tick, buy Australian pork, another tick. We've now got skin-on pigs coming in, and it always used to be skin-off. So skin-off used to be, had to come in, normally went into tinned products or that budget bacon, and you wonder why it didn't have any skin. Well, that was the reason. Now the only way you can tell where the pork comes from is to have a look at that little bar on the back of the pack. That is the only way. Which is very rare to see much in the way of Australian pork produce. Although one of our very good, very close friends, they do a very good bacon, which is 100% Australian. They do various pork products. Packed and Pack do 100% Australian pork, black pudding, bacon, gammon steaks and pork lard. So yep. a plug to one of our unofficial yep. sponsors. Unofficial sponsors. Yeah. And and if, if you have a look, even in South Australia, which has still got a lot of pigs here, it's you've got Big River at Murray Bridge, you've got Port Wakefield, um, you've still got the likes of Primo, you know, under the JBS banner and that. They're still using a lot coals, um, a lot of a lot of locally grown pork, but the volume is a lot of imported mm. product. But but the main argument is that every farm around the world will complain about imports of the same product into their own country, especially when you grow it yourself. Exactly. So that so that's why I'm not really I can't really complain too much about these Americans saying that because it's everyone protects their own interest. Again, before your time, Andrew, we we did have a car industry once too, though, and we also used to all of a sudden we took the tariffs off the cars and the car industry disappeared. What's the what was what was that old saying that somebody used to tell us, Matt? Always back that horse called self-interest. Self-interest, yeah, that's right. Good, good saying. Got a lot of good sayings from that particular person. Uh, um, the, the other, the, I think, the death knell of the car industry was when we went to dollar ten against the US as well. That was the final. That was the final straw. I think that was that was the last of the the closures. <laughs> so, so in terms of that price, I'm actually just looking at a chart just now on. AHDB, which does show that our prices are pretty. Oh, they're low compared to elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. They're I think lowest. it was the lowest. Yeah, by a long stretch. <laughs> I think the last time I looked at it, French lamb was getting about eight pounds, and Australian lamb converted into pounds was something like two fifty or thereabouts. Yeah. Um, yeah. New Zealand lamb was about three dollars. Well, he, he, he's an he's an interesting statement from AHDB for you, Matt, because. Uh, I remember reading a report from an animal rights activist that criticised you for saying that uh, 
we don't mention the global sheep meat price affecting mm. the impact of live sheep export decline. Uh, and basically, HDB saying Australia and New Zealand uh, are the two largest exporters, and therefore, and therefore, prices there very much reflect global supply and demand balances of sheep meat. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, no, that's right. So, basically, saying exactly what you said, mm. uh, and you were criticised. But- just on that, Andrew, though, isn't it funny that that the argument reverts to price, not animal welfare outcomes, and yet. Uh, now that we've got our animal welfare outcomes in Australia to a level of, I think, absolute excellence, now we're back to talking about price to, <laughs> to remove the industry. Like, pick your bloody horse, you know. This is I've – I've been invested ever since I started as an agent, even before that, with live exports and, and supply. Not one farmer have I ever met ever wanted a poor outcome in regards to their livestock. There is no vested interest in a live exporter – not treating animals right, and where we've got to now, like the cruise industry lose more people as a percentage than what we do on, on live export these days. But I, I suppose if Nana, Nana and Granddad pass away on a cruise ship, you just shovel them over the side, it'll be right because, you know, we've got the inheritance to come. So, what's the uh, what, what is your views on the live export? Obviously, I've, I'm going to take a guess on your views on live <laughs> export from, from that, but. But what, what do you think the impact's going to be? Like you must have you what, must have independent members think, in WA. What do you think it's going to be? I'm, I'm telling you what it is. Yep. That the, as soon as live export get checked, which we've seen now and we've seen previously, there is an immediate correlation to the domestic price offered at sale yard every time. Two thousand. If you go back to 1992, 93, there was 110,000 sheep that had been put on in, in at $12 into El Makarish to go onto a shipment. Uh, the live export job fell over. Those same sheep, the next week, I think that they were between 3 and $6. Uh, we saw it in 2011 with cattle. We saw it in 2012 with sheep in Western Australia. $25 correction on the transactional value of sheep in seven days. And we're now seeing the same in the north in regards to live export. So it just tips, it tips volume back into a system that can't handle the volume all at one hit. Mm. Um, and you yeah. know that's and I think Matt because Matt loves numbers. Matt could come up with some really. Cool well, I was just about to. I was just about to say something because if even if you look at the best scenario is that moratorium prohibition period from mid May to mid September in WA, so that no no live export buyers through that period of time. What happens to the the normal discount from WA you know, types of lamb and sheep versus the eastern states? You see the the discount widen out to to much much wider discounts and so the last five years we've seen that pretty much every year it happened the only year where the discount remained pretty much the same so the, the normal long if you look something like trade land between the west and the east the normal discount something like nine percent in the west right to the east and for the 2020 year it was at nine percent um so it stayed about the same but that was the year we had 1.9 million head of sheep go from the west to the east so it was the eastern markets that supported it that year but Every other year, the discounts have been far in excess, you know, 25%, 30% discounts. And, and that's through that period of time when there's no live export buyer. So there's, you know, some, there's some breaking news. I've got breaking news here. You don't get that often yeah. in this podcast. We were just mentioning McCulloch Agencies. Yep. McCulloch Agencies will join Laud from September 1st. The LAWD, the, the re, uh, real estate guys. D- Danny Thomas and whatnot. Is he um, still there? Is Danny Thomas still there? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. No, Danny's there. 
Appointment of Daniel McCulloch as Lodge Shareholder and Senior Director of Agribusiness Transaction. There you go. So would Lord be an independent or would that be larger scale? <clears throat> no, no, Lord, you'd consider them an independent agency. I don't know their shareholder, but that's a that's a natural fit. We see that all the time. Uh, just recently, Craig Pellow at Tamora uh, um, went into an arrangement with uh, McNichol. So uh, we saw it with uh, Nutrien going back years ago, went with Harcourts. You find, you find a real estate uh, business that is a natural fit for your agency business. It, it's just... It, it creates economy of scale. It, it gives you buyers. Everyone thinks that you've got to find the vendors. Sometimes the, the buyers are the most important part. If you've got a buyer, you'll normally find a property to sell. Especially, and, I was uh, going to say, with property would be a big thing, especially the scale now of property transactions. Exactly, exactly right. And look, if you have a look at, at Danny and the Lord team, uh, they've, they appeared, what was that, four or five years ago. Well, they've done all right for themselves. You know, they've, uh, they've promoted themselves in the right way. They had a, a cracking network. Uh, that doesn't take anything away from the other companies, but at the end of the day, they had the skill set that appealed to that pastoral, uh, larger aggregation sort of uh, client. They were CBRE beforehand, weren't they? Most of the stuff. Uh, yeah, there's quite a few that came from there, yeah. 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 The CBRE yeah. is still there, you know, and CBRE, yeah, yeah. Polyers, um, Elders, Nutrient, all of, everyone has got a real estate offering uh, or in a, a relationship, um, you know, in the livestock industry. you, you you're dealing with those clients for sometimes 20 and 30 years. And eventually when they say they want to sell, it's your relationship that gives you the sale, but you've also got to be able to deliver because a property that used to be worth 500,000 going back in the eighties, that's now worth 20 million. And you think to yourself, well, you know, have I got the expertise? And sometimes a smaller agency hasn't got the expertise. So they will bring in a specialist provider, which is, you know, Daniel's done it without knowing anything more about it. For me, that's just a natural progression for Daniel in regard to brand brand awareness. So go back to the live, live export and animal rights activists. What do you think will be, I've asked this of a few people, live export, most likely. I know that people are, are campaigning against reversing the ban. Most likely that's going to be banned. Like there's, there's no... The live sheep side. Live sheep. Live sheep. Specify live cattle. Live sheep. But what do what do you think will be the next target for animal rights Active. activists? Oh, so closing down playgrounds. <laughs> I, honestly, like I, I don't think anyone on this this is that silly that they don't know where it'll go next. Um, what what I do know from my time in in the larger corporate is. They are extremely well organised. They're extremely well funded. They run they run their programs like military campaigns. You've got three or four at the top that are absolutely mercenary in their approach. They have no fear of of bending the truth and sometimes even creating the the uh, the story as we've seen in the past. But the nature of uh, the nature of the media in Australia is that you award people for coming up with fiction because it it got ratings on television. Um, my concern is that we don't put enough we don't put enough uh, uh, focus onto those myths mistruths and and if you think right across Australia how many livestock move every day and what are we going to do are we going to go back to to uh, having drovers on the stock routes and moving big mobs of bullocks from Queensland down into New South Wales and vice versa I don't think so 
I tried to get the stock routes opened in the southeast in the middle of the drought, about 2018, 17 it was, 2017-18. And uh, I was told by the local councils that we can't possibly open those stock routes because there'll be a hazard to traffic. Okay, well, we probably get around that. And the native vegetation. And they pointed out the areas that this native vegetation, that native vegetation, that was actually where the dams were, which were actually put there for the stock routes as watering points. So I think we've got to be, we've got to understand the only way is to continually be focused on animal welfare outcomes. And if someone does something wrong, that they've got to be brought to task. And, and often just let the match burn and go out. If you give it oxygen, it creates a bigger issue than what it, what well, it actually I think, I think that's probably a good example with APL with the CO2 gassing for pigs back in, when was that, four months ago? Yep. Mm. They just didn't react to it. And then it didn't really get much coverage. Like yep. Animals Australia didn't really, or what was his name? That that guy with the mapping project. Del Force. Del Force, Chris Del Force. Mm. He didn't really get too far with it. Like it wasn't any coverage. It was a bit of a, a wet elephant to be to to yeah it is and and it's all about it's all about not giving the flame oxygen and in the old days because we we everyone loved to fight the second someone's the industry or the agency or the or the producer bodies would all dive into the media to defend themselves we're actually quite comfortable out there now about how much we've improved if you think about the old business structure you know the first thing used to be money how do we make more money and then you got down, eventually you got down to staff. Well, we're not going to pay them much because we want to make money. And then you got down to uh, work health and safety and then you got down to animal welfare. Well, at present, work health and safety for your staff and animal welfare are the, are the two absolute top-level priorities for any business in Australia. And that doesn't matter whether it's livestock industry or any business. Um, that's, that's, that's how much the industry has changed. But, but that you alluded to it before, though, when you were talking about the live space and carriage of animals, you know, that, that or, or on farm as well. There's not a producer out there. There's not a live exporter that doesn't understand that animal welfare goes hand in hand with a good product, and then getting paid good money for what that good product is delivering. Right. So if if if, it, if you're sending a boat to let's see, send a boat to Qatar, yeah. Because yep. there's, a, I imagine I know the answer. Those guys aren't. They haven't dealt with people from the Middle East. They're shrewd when it comes to business. Yeah. Yep. If if you if you send sheep on a boat, yeah, and they yep. get there and they're in a poor state, they're not going to pay full whack for them, are they? No, that's and, and so what with any live export operation, you run a letter of credit, and it might have changed a bit now, but you you are delivering product to specification. We've got to be mindful too that the the importing companies, you know, KLTT and and, and the LSS into Qatar, they've they've got direct line direct line of sight with those governments. They it's about food sovereignty. Where it's not about oh we just want to have them. It's like crayfish. Oh, we need to eat crayfish. No, mm. it's about it's about feeding their population, and and giving them the opportunity to, you know, their cultural and religious components. Uh, that's what we, we've got countries that want our livestock. Um, and SCAS came in, it was difficult at the start, but it's accepted now. <laughs> so 
we seem to think that if we stop live export out of Australia, all of the world animal welfare issues disappear. All we've done is transfer price them. We've put what we've done to achieve what I think is, is the highest standard, and now we're saying, okay, well, you get them out of this country or that country that's got absolutely no animal welfare criteria, and because the sheep aren't treated right in those countries, Australians can feel good because we stopped doing it. Well, I think that's that's bullshit. It's a bit like Billy, the greenwashing sort of a thing. Yeah, exactly right. There you go. It's, it's so green. It's yep. sort of, and as and we've we've seen it. We've done the stats on it, looking at you know if since twenty seventeen, if you look at the volumes, volumes going into the Middle East live are actually increasing. Yep. But they're increasing, but our volumes are declining because the moratorium. Uh, but it's going to the likes of Somalia, Sudan, South Africa, Romania, Romania. yep. Um, which which will be really interesting to see, you, you know, if they can continue to provide the same volumes as well in the longer term. The best way to keep meat fresh is to leave the skin on it and let it look after itself, 100%. And, you know, with our loading densities now, we go back into the 90s, you had ships out of Portland, out of Adelaide, Fremantle, that they're live sheep ships, and they were running 110,000. Now the ships are back to running 50s and 60s. Yeah, 60, yep. Um, we've got in the cattle industry, we've gone from the old Danny F, which sank off of Libya, and we've got the the um, the old Torrens, which are elders owner, a cracking ship, old ship but fast. We've now got brand-new G classes that, you know, 4,500 cattle. It's like a, a floating um, motel. Like they're looked after that well. They've got their own desalination plants. They've got uh, emergency bunk in case they run into a storm. You've got the larger Wellard ships, LSS. It's it's not a tin pot operation coming out of Australia, um, and that's what I'm saying. We should be taking control of supply, and which actually gives a global <laughs> impact on animal welfare outcomes. But we seem to be we seem to be running away from that. What about on a, on a side note? Like obviously, you mentioned about there's issues at the moment in the north with cattle. Uh, we've got LSD. You know, there's issues around LSD, and I think is it Indonesia back on or just or is it just some? No, there's only there's a handful of um, sites that are that are just been paused for the moment, just while they're checking to make sure. And, that, and, um, Mal and Malaysia's off, but they don't bloody import. Yeah, Malaysia one one percent of our cattle exports per year live go to Malaysia, so they're. they're that that's not a, a big area, uh, and that, significant and, site, and that's that's a challenge because there is no market for those cattle from the north apart from live export. Like they're not they're not that meat's not wanted in the domestic market at all. Oh, I could go into grinding meat here, and you know it can go into that if it, if it needs so to. You, but that's you, not that's you, not they're not going to get you're not you, going to get the, the good money for it if it goes in. The and you and, and there's no abattoirs up there because they failed. Uh, yeah, everyone. well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to stick them on a truck for what forty hours plus. No, that's it. It's look those days that oh, the animal welfare standards. You take them the distance. They're then spilled, then reloaded, and then they go to their next destination. Um, all of that's pretty much covered. Like the Live Transporters Association in, in, involved with animal welfare and also the agents. The the standards now, and you've only got to go onto the website and have a look. They've got standards from everything from alpacas through to cattle, um, and every other animal in between. And they they're quite. They're quite um, prescriptive, and we all know what we need to do. You know, the days of just running a truck straight through, long gone. Yeah, so, yep. That'll be the. That'll, I'm still. 
like a lot of people say that Carol Live Exports will be the next target. I don't think it will. I, th I think it. I don't think. I think Carol's too hard of a target, and I think the animal rights activists are smarter than that. And I think it would be. I don't think it would be alive, the transport of sheep across the Nullarbor. It's it's more it's more about well if if that's going to come in, uh, taking live export away from Western Australia, we <laughs> and then yeah, and then making it more difficult to send them across the east and, and and feedlots. Yeah, but it isn't isn't it funny? We can we can ship racehorses all over the world all the time, not a problem. Shove them on a plane, push them across, put them on a ferry. It makes no difference. It's uh, um, maybe because it's is it not seen or is it is it just accepted? Like at the end of the day, livestock are livestock, aren't they? And, and oh, don't, don't don't worry about that, Chris, because they want to get rid of horse racing as well. So <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> you, you jumped the gun a bit. They're they're, they're sort of uh, they're going straight to the actual the race course as opposed to the uh, the shipping them around the world. So it's a it's, it's an interesting one <laughs> because, like I, I've said this, where did I say this, Matt? The first podcast we ever we ever did, recorded, mm -hmm. not this not Agwatch's podcast, but a previously one we're not allowed to name. It's still mm -hmm. around if anyone wants to listen to it. We talked about uh, social license, mm -hmm. and I talked about how social license was erroneous. And that social license was something that could never be achieved. And that it's just what you're doing is you capitulate one thing and it allows it to move continually further down. You're just chipping away to like caged eggs is a perfect example of that. Caged eggs get banned, then barn eggs get banned, and then it's free range. And the industry is not competitive for that point. Isn't, so, isn't it funny? Uh, so like... Um... Caged eggs, okay. Look, it's it's it gets a bad rap, but at the end of the day, healthier. The chicken feels safe, okay. There's no eagles or foxes sitting there talking to its mates. It's got fresh water. The eggs are clean. Um, it only come out last week. The amount of salmonella listeria cases from <laughs> eggs has gone through the roof. But you know, it's it, I, I just think I think we just need to get some balance back into Australian society and and. Uh, and I'll give a, a big tick. Like Woolworths uh, um, partnered up with Think Digital, Tim Gentle, on that uh, a virtual reality um, uh, AR type uh, uh, augmented reality. And it was about training kids where their food come from. And I just think we don't do enough of that. Uh, when I was at Mount Gambier, which is a great, uh, it's a massive dairy area, we brought two busloads of kids out to a dairy farm. And you would have thought they all knew there was only 20%. We did the numbers. There's only 20% of those kids that actually knew where milk come from. And that's living in the country. So we've well, it got comes from almonds. It comes from almonds, Chris. We all know that. Soybeans. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I had a fox get into my herd of almonds the other day. What no good. Yeah. The, but the, this it's an interesting one because, like, I, I was thinking this morning in the shower about policy, yeah? And that's how exciting my show was there. But the, the, well. the, the, I was thinking about how, you know, we always, like, the government makes a policy decision, yeah? Ban live exports or caged eggs or buy back water for the environment, something like that. And what the agriculture industry always goes out and says, this is how it's going to impact me. 
This yeah. is how it's going to impact. Like if I'm sitting in Broadmeadows or Dandenong and I'm struggling to pay for my eggs or whatever because it's expensive on, on my lamb. But I'm also, let's be honest, farmers are the top 1% of wealth in the country. What policy needs, what submissions about, you know, arguing against a, a government policy that is bad to agriculture, they should be focused on what it means to the consumer. For instance, let, let's, let's just use a hypothetical. Yeah, If the government buys back water for environmental purposes, that puts the price of water up. If the price of water goes up, the price of tomatoes goes up, which then is a consumer issue. We should be focused on how government policy impacts the consumer, not the farmer, because nobody cares about farmers. Yeah, that's, and I think the misconception that farmers are in the top 1%, there's plenty out there that are very well set, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of families out there that are, and, you know, significant, that it's lifestyle for them. Uh, their kids don't, don't go to the best school. They bloody work hard. They have a holiday each year. But at the end of the day, they're just, they're paying off the block of land they bought or they're paying a bit of machinery off. Um but it's lifestyle, not being a dairy farmer. A lot of dairy farmers, it's, it is actually down to the fact that they've got an affinity with their, their animals and they enjoy doing it. It's not all about just becoming the richest person in the cemetery, which so many farmers tell me that. They said, what's the point of being the richest farmer in the cemetery? So I, I think I think the way it's modelled up is the issue. We, we've got this absolute disconnect with the voter base these days. And when I went to school... Everyone knew someone from a farm and, you know, they'd go there for the weekends and, you know, it was just, it was old-fashioned Australia and I, I just think we're really, we're really stepping away from, you know, but, where where our roots are grounded and but, I don't th- I don't know how we can fix that. I really don't. But. I, I don't, I, don't think, I, think we, I think it's too late. But I think yeah. if, if we look, look use, use the caged exa- eggs as an example, yeah, the price of eggs in New Zealand is double the price of eggs in Australia. Yep. Why is that? Because of the, exactly what you said. No cage, no cage yeah. eggs. Okay, yep. supply goes down, price goes up. So it <laughs> comes back to basic economics. So, and that's where I think, if the argument had, if the argument for banning caged eggs is humaneness, which I'm not 100 percent over it, but the reality is, it impacts the consumer at the end of the day. You know, the 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 price of the eggs if it doubles in Australia. Will make eggs pretty expensive. I think some of the quotes are fifteen dollars, a half a dozen. dozen, a dozen. Yeah, it's half dozen. Is it not? Was it? I thought it was fifteen dollars a dozen. Yeah, oh. fifteen a dozen. And and it's yeah. also around the narrative. Uh, there was a really good um, interview, I think, on the ABC going back last week. And because when you do a lot of driving, you listen to a lot of this stuff. And one of the free range farmers, he actually stated the volume, the um, the densities they're allowed to put on. And he said, if we did that, we would go out of business. He said. I can only leave my chickens in in that paddock for three days. Otherwise, you know, it, it takes too much feed away, turns it into a mud heap. And so they're continually, so he said, we're producing less eggs, but the outcomes are better for us. Everyone thinks free range is, uh, free range is just the perfect world. It's, it's open air intensive feeding. So chicken, you might as well have them in a cage. I, don't, I might be wrong on this because I'm not a biologist, but chickens in a natural environment are in forests, are they not? They don't feel totally comfortable out in the open. But they're, but they're not. They're not. Yeah. Op- they're not in open fields like a cow. No, no, no. They're no, they're, no. In, they're in forests, which is, gives you a certain amount of protection from 
foxes and whatever else. I never would see. They were always on the other side of the road. I never got close enough to them. <laughs> so, but I just, I just, uh, I just think it's what what I think is going to be really interesting is the next couple of years, as you know, everyone used to say, like I'm a I'm a Gen X. No, I'm not you're a Gen X, Matt. Yes, correct. I'm a Gen Y millennial. Uh, and everyone used to say, uh, oh, millennials care about where the food comes from. They're willing to pay a premium for the food and blah, 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 blah. Which is probably fine as a 20-year-old, yeah? When you've sort of a bit of a prick, really. And you sort of care about all that kind of stuff. But when you get into your 30s and you're actually, okay, you've got a kid, you've got a mortgage and stuff like that. Suddenly, I wonder if caring where your food comes from or how it's treated actually is as big a driver. You know what I mean, Matt? Yeah, well, when, like, like well, if, if, when if, your free if, range if, eggs are $15 for a dozen and your cage eggs are $3 for a dozen, it might make you different well, that's opinion. What, that's, that's what I'm saying. Like, it's Does that millennial sort of airy-fairy view change when cost of living crisis comes along? Like, I know, I know, like I know people that are saying, well, geez, things are getting expensive. But yeah. it's, it's, you get back into the 90s, we were copping 17% interest. And meat was cheap, and it was cheap, but we weren't getting paid very much. And so, no different to these days when you when you've got a young family, you've got a mortgage. Spaghetti bolognese starts to become that real go to meal because it's cheap. The kids like it, and at the end of the day, you can you can't bloody, really stuff it up. Bloody, uh, Austra- bloody Australians, decadent beans on toast. Beans on oh, toast God. was was in Scotland. You're not from Yorkshire, are you? Some <laughs> sometimes with a bit of cheese on top if 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 uh, things are going well. So oh, God. You don't realise how good you've got it in Australia. Yeah, it's right. get it's it's getting silly. So that's usually a sign that we're running towards the end. I think. Yeah. Right. Oh well, I guess we'll probably end it there. And uh, Chris, thanks for thanks for coming at uh, very short notice. I think. Probably shortest notes we've had, Matt, for a guest. Uh, I'd, I'd kind of indicated a few times we'd get him on at some stage, but the actual booking in of Chris was literally Five fifteen minutes. minutes before fifteen minutes before we started. So. Uh, enough enough time to pop to the toilet and uh, yeah, that's that was it. Good. But I knew I knew from from past uh, podcasts and stuff that Chris knows his stuff backwards, so he's able to come on at incredibly short notice and talk about anything. So, uh, all good, easy. So, Thanks, mate. See you when you got nothing right. on. No worries. Thanks, guys. Bye bye.